If you believe in a pathway to citizenship, pass it. It's over 11 million undocumented folks, the vast majority of here, overstaying visas. Pass it. We can actually, if you actually want to solve a problem, I've sent a bill to take a close look at it. President Joe Biden there in his address to Congress earlier this week, citing the 11 million undocumented people in the United States and encouraging legislators to take action. Among those undocumented immigrants, obviously, are many Irish people. Estimates vary, but thousands or even tens of thousands of undocumented Irish-born people live in the USA, unable to leave out of fear of being barred re-entry. The logistics of emigrating and pursuing the fabled American dream has changed a lot in the past 60 years or so due to various legislative reforms in the US Congress. This story is told in a new book, Unintended Consequences, the story of Irish immigration to the US and how America's door was closed to the Irish. The author is Ray O'Hanlon, editor of the New York City-published Irish Echo newspaper. Ray, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you, Miles. Now, in the book, you trace the history of the Irish in the United States from the 1580s, and I have to say I was not aware that we went back quite that far, up to the present day with with stories of how Irish-born people played a role in uh, American history. Now, in addition to the overall story that you're trying to tell, these are stories that you include to illustrate why the overarching narrative is worth telling. Absolutely. You know, the story, there's two components to it, I suppose. There's the narrative of the legislative narrative, the battles for visas in more recent decades. But to underpin that, to sort of say, you know, why is it such a big deal to the Irish being excluded from the United States? You have to sort of look at the overall story of the Irish in America, which does go back centuries, goes back to the 1580s. The first recorded Irishman in North American soil uh, before it even was the United States, of course, was a man named Edward Nugent, who had a rather unfortunate encounter with a a Native American chief and actually supposedly beheaded that uh, Native American chief. Um, So that first encounter wasn't very positive. But we're talking of a story that does indeed go back centuries and really takes off in the 18th century when so many Irish fought for American independence under the banner of George Washington. The 19th century, we know the mass migration across the Atlantic continuing into the 20th century. Irish America is a big deal. It's a big entity. It's the second largest ethnic group in the United States after the Germans. And for the door to be closed after 1965 was no small thing. It was met with anger, frustration, confusion, and the Irish began to rally to sort of fight back. So the story kind of sets that. Why was it such a big deal, 1965? Why was it such an alarming thing to the Irish at the time? So the book seeks to sort of wrap that bigger story around the narrative of the last few decades and the various organisations that have fought for visas. I'm assuming by describing Edward Nugent as the first Irishman to set foot on American soil that you're discounting St. Brendan, but we won't get into <laughs> to that, particular, that him, yeah. particular story. Yeah. One person, one interesting emigrant as well. I mean, if Nugent was the first, Annie Moore was a significant Irish emigrant. Tell me why that's the case. You know, we see it in Joe Biden. You mentioned Joe Biden. I've always said over the years, I mean, I'm in the news business, but I've always set aside something for what I call the power of sentiment. Never underestimate the power of sentiment. I've come across sentiment time and time again, 
dealing with Irish Americans and I, I've sort of gotten used to it. But the feelings that they have for Ireland are quite extraordinary. They, they range high above just, OK, family connections or DNA and stuff like that. It, it's far more than that. And Annie Moore is a kind of a symbolic figure. She was a young girl. And like so many Irish immigrants in the 19th century, she was a young woman. Countless young Irish women made that perilous journey across the Atlantic, often on their own. Annie had her little brother with her. She becomes this kind of symbolic figure, the first recorded immigrant at Ellis Island. And to this day, and the chapter describes the sort of rediscovery of Annie and her life, she kind of got lost in the American sort of mist for many years. There were various Annie Moores discovered, one uh, in the Midwest, one in Texas, and they finally, through genealogical research, discovered her on the Lower East Side. She'd married a German immigrant. Uh, She had a tough life, and she died young, and she was buried in Calvary Cemetery in Queens, the largest cemetery in the United States with over three million residents, and there's Annie in the middle of it. And the chapter kind of describes that rediscovery of Annie and her story, the day that her headstone was rededicated, Ronan Tyne and the tenor nearly blew headstones away, singing Isle of Hope, Isle of Tears. It it was an absolutely incredible moment that day. But that chapter is used to kind of underpin and emphasise the emotional, sentimental connection, which actually ends up fueling a lot of the sort of activity in Irish America undertaken on behalf of Ireland. Now, the sense of emigration to the USA in the 19th century is you just you rock up, you say, here I am, and you walk in. That begins to change towards the end of the century, but not necessarily for the Irish, more for Chinese, Japanese, Chinese in particular on the West Coast. And of course, the Irish play a part in bringing that about. So is there any restrictive legislation in an Irish context, emigration legislation, in the 19th century? Uh, not really. It really was an open door. I always remember the uh, the movie Gangs of New York. You, you remember the scene mm. where uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is kind of wondering, why aren't we running this town yet? He says, there are 15,000 of us coming off the boats every week. And that wasn't an exaggeration during the 1840s, 50s and 60s. In 1860, one in five people in New York City was born in Ireland. Born now, not just first or second generation. So, no, it really was an open door. It was was an empty continent in need of people and the Irish were able to pretty much walk ashore. In in the context of that movie, you see young men been given muskets and, and Union uniforms and marched off to war. But the labour was needed. The people were needed to settle the land, to work in industry, and they were also needed by big city political machines for their votes. So it really was an open door. And the Chinese have the dubious distinction of being the only ones who actually had legislation passed to exclude them. That has never happened with the Irish. But it, the effect of the 65 Act wasn't intended, but rather unintended, but the effect has been pretty much the same. But I think that wasn't there a quota system of some kind introduced in the 1920s, for example, uh, even before the 65 legislation. Did that have any impact on Irish immigration? No, because it was a quota system that largely favoured Europeans, including the Irish. It was on top of the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was again designed to sort of filter, if you will, the different immigrant groups uh, with an emphasis on North and West Europe. So what came about in the 1920s was not unfavourable to the Irish at all. 
but it was a discriminator. You know, you had a Congress beginning to discriminate between particular um, racial and ethnic groups. It wasn't a pretty sight. But for the Irish, it wasn't an immediate impediment, and and they would continue to come during the 1920s, the 1930s, and then there was a pause for World War II, and then a significant number would again come in the 1950s. You know, the Irish faced a lot of discrimination in America. We'll not forget that once they arrived. But there was no great bar to their actual arrival. Now, uh, you include, as I said in my introduction, a number of stories which illustrate the importance of the Irish-American connection. Let's talk about one of those stories, an individual um, to whom you essentially devote a chapter, a man, a young man, or a young man at the time, called Michael McGrath. And interestingly, this is just prior to the curtain coming down. Tell me about Michael McGrath and what his connection was with the USA. Well, Michael was a member of the um, Curra Command Army Rifle Drill Team. Uh, when President Kennedy visited Ireland in 1963, the Curra Command Rifle Drill Team performed their drill for him. I believe it was at the Garden of Remembrance. And they had this drill called the Queen Anne Drill, which they did with old Lee Enfield rifles. President Kennedy was absolutely amazed by this. He thought it was the most magnificent rifle drill he'd ever seen. And apparently when he came back after his visit, uh, he said this to Jackie Kennedy. So that was June 63, and he was assassinated in November. And, and Jackie Kennedy remembered this. And she said in, in organising the funeral, she insisted that the Irish Army cadets come over and stand guard over her dead husband at Arlington National Cemetery. And as Michael McGrath tells the story, you know, they were a bunch of young guys, um, cadets, they're all 19 years of age, they're down in the Curra. They get roused out of bed in the middle of the night. They had just been given new Belgian FN rifles, and they were told to get their old Lee Enfields out of the grease packs. They were going to Dublin Airport. They had no clue initially what was going on. They found out as they went along, arrived at Dublin Airport. There was Eamon de Valera, an Aer Lingus plane. They were all piled on board the plane and flew to America. And it gradually was being revealed to them what had happened and what their role was going to be. But what he remembers fearfully said, you know, he didn't have a passport. Nobody had a passport. But when they got to Idlewild Airport in New York, which would soon be JFK, Uh, The Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, was waiting for them at the bottom of the steps coming down from the plane. So there they are, the two lines. If you look at the funeral of JFK, you'll see the two lines of these tall, they were generally tall guys with their white sort of bandoliers and stuff and their jodhpurs, the Irish Army cadets. Two lines of them. Michael tells the story. They were there for two hours before the cortege arrived. And I remember asking him at the end, I said, you know, Michael, what do you remember most of that day? And he says to me, the drums. He will never forget the drums getting closer, coming over the key bridge with the cortege. There's an irony, of course, in the whole Kennedy connection, because you're talking about and have been talking about, and the book is really about the 1965 Immigration and the Nationality Act and the unintended consequences involved there. But it was very much a piece of Kennedy legislation, Kennedy brothers legislation, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I mean, President Kennedy, um, in his book, A Nation of Immigrants, sort of outlined his view of what immigration should be. I mean, we had the national quotas favoring European groups, nationalities, and Kennedy took the view that it should be more diverse and open to the world, but not necessarily excluding these European uh, groups either. And when he was assassinated, um, his brother, Teddy Kennedy, pretty well picked up the, um, the banner on this one 
and President Johnson also, and the Congress. And we had the signing of the 65 uh, Immigration and Nationality Act on Liberty Island, New York Harbor. It's the cover of the book, that photograph. And you see Teddy in it and Bobby Kennedy. And uh, Jackie is just off frame on the left. But Edward Kennedy and all these other legislators who sort of signed on to this were, were at pains to state that nothing was really going to change. And, and there was a political expediency in this. They didn't want to scare Americans that America was go suddenly about to be turned on its head. But the genuine belief was that even with a more diverse family-based, family reunification-based immigration system, that the face of immigration would not drastically change. And that was a, a, an expressed belief by virtually all legislators in Capitol Hill. Uh, but they were wrong. The world suddenly woke up to this new form of American uh, immigration. And, and I have to say, there was a moral core to the 65 Act. It was very much in the spirit of the time. Um, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, it sort of, sort of falls into place with those. But the world paid attention, and suddenly the door was wider open. So you had Latin America, South America, Africa, Asia, so saying, oh, wow, you know, this is, this is our moment, this is our opportunity. It did change American immigration, and it did have a pretty immediate effect of closing down Irish access. Three years after 65, when, when the parts of the bill came into full force, Irish immigration pretty much fell over a cliff. Why was that? I mean, was it to do with the family reuniting or repatriation element of the legislation? You know, I think sociologists and historians will, will, would sort of look at this closely. I mean, we know that by the 1960s, there, there were two dynamics in play here. Uh, the Irish government at the time was disinclined. There were offers made to them that we could build in something for the Irish into the legislation. Teddy Kennedy made an offer. But the government of the day, the Sean Lamass government, was of the view that, quite understandably so, that Ireland needed its people. It was going to develop economically. If economic plans on paper were going to actually take effect, Ireland needed its people. So that was the, the one thing on that side. And then also the fact that the people who left Ireland, emigrants leaving Ireland at the time, tended to be individuals rather than entire families. So they were individual, and they weren't going to come and pull very many relatives with them. You wouldn't have that many. Some families, yeah, but not many. Most Irish immigrants were individuals. And what you had with the family reunification, you started to have lines, tailbacks of relatives coming in based on one immigrant arriving. Uh, let's say a male breadwinner then brings in a wife, then brings in children, then brings in siblings, and you have this tailback. The process takes sometimes years. So you had tailbacks of immigrants coming back from the family reunification and individuals kind of getting elbowed aside by these long lines of people waiting to get in. So it was a combination of what was happening in Ireland and the nature of Irish emigration at the time resulted in the Irish being sort of elbowed aside. Now, that wouldn't have had huge repercussions or ramifications in Ireland in the 1960s, in the 19, early 1970s, because things were improving yes. in Ireland. But from the mid-70s onwards, and certainly by the time you get to the 1980s, it's now beginning to be a huge problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, as I remember the 1980s is that, you know, Ireland was changing and, and becoming a much more sort of engaged society with other countries. People were traveling more. It was uh, more of a consumer society. I think there were greater expectations among young Irish people in the 1980s in particular. They were being sort of reared now in a sort of consumer society. And when those expectations 
were foiled by economic recession, which there was, the next thing to do was, well, you know, I can't hang around here. I do have a cousin in the Bronx, and he's telling me there's plenty of work. You can work, you can make loads of money, and then you can go back with your loads of money and get your kickstart. So what we saw then in the mid-1980s, we saw thousands of Irish make that westward trek flying now across the ocean and landing in an America that was now post another immigration act. The 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act signed by President Reagan, which had in it a lot of new restrictions, but also had it a sort of a grandfather clause, an amnesty with a cut-off date, which allowed for ultimately about three million people to get in who were undocumented and illegal because of they were in before the cut-off date. But the vast majority of the Irish in the 80s came after the cut-off date. So they were out on, you know, out in a limb. And that sort of precipitated and began the, the lottery visa campaigns, the engagement of Irish-American politicians and uh, a lobby group, the Irish Immigration Reform Movement, to try and fix this problem of the undocumented Irish in the late 80s and early 90s. Now, Ireland did have its champions in Congress, most notably Brian Donnelly and Bruce Morrison and and their legislation and the visas that uh, they came up with for Irish people. But were they just sticking plasters? Pretty much. And later Irish immigration campaigners would talk about, well, they would continue to talk about the undocumented, those who did not benefit from the Donnelly visas, the Morrison visas, the few from the Berman visas, and the early days Schumer diversity visas. You had another factor, of course, in the late 90s. You had a sudden explosive economic growth in Ireland itself. We all remember the Celtic Tiger, which kind of pulled some even visa holders back from the US to Ireland. But in the in the early, the first decade of this century, you had um, a realization, and particularly after the, the crash, that there were still thousands of undocumented Irish here who had not benefited from those various visa programs and were still living in the shadows here in the United States. And you also started to hear a phrase, future flow, which was looking ahead to sort of return to a point where, you know, you wouldn't have huge numbers of Irish, but you wouldn't be excluded simply for being Irish. And also, you also had an increasing sort of look back to what was perceived to be the cause of this long-burning issue now, and that was a new look at the 65 Act, a new critical look at the 1965 Act, forgetting the 1980s, going way back to what was now viewed as being the source of the problem. So that sort of carries us in to the first, through the first two decades of this century. In conclusion, can we put a figure on it? Do we know how many undocumented Irish there are in the USA? I mean, there have been a figure put as high as 250,000, which seems like a ridiculously high figure. The 250,000 was voiced back in the 1980s when the Irish immigration reform movement campaigners were trying to attract political attention to it. How do you attract it? You kind of exaggerate the number so that journalists are going, oh my God, there's 250,000 Irish people wandering the streets with no, no visas. So it becomes a story. It gets into the New York Times and politicians start to pay attention. But when politicians then start to pay attention, you realise that 250,000 is a huge pill to swallow. It's not going to make it in Congress when other people start looking at it. What do you mean visas for two? So you start to lower the number. The number, the number then starts come tumbling down again to a more realistic level. But today, I mean, yeah, you hear up to 50,000, you hear as low as 10,000. Personally, I try not to concentrate on numbers anymore. I try to think of individuals. 
you know, I've been lucky in my American life. I try to think of people who have been living in the shadows, have families in a, for decades now, but still have to look over their shoulder. There's still that fear of the knock on the door, of being tripped up, of being discovered in some way. That fear grew exponentially in the four years of the Trump administration. It has eased somewhat now with Joe Biden. But one of the first things Biden does is come in and say, we don't use the term illegal aliens anymore. I mean, psychologically, that's a, that's a gift. So I, I'd rather not think so much in numbers and try and think in terms of individuals and try and see how we can get to a point where they are allowed to live out the rest of their lives in America legally and without that daily fear. There is a bill in there are two bills now, one in the Senate, one in the House, which would do that. But of course, Congress being Congress, it can barely agree on what day of the week it is. Uh, it's going to be a hell of a tough fight. Well, it's a fight that you've been covering as a journalist for uh, three or four decades now, and we've talked about it on many occasions in the past on news and current affairs programs. So it's interesting to be talking about it on the history show, and hopefully it will become history at some point in the future. But I'm delighted that you've managed to get it all together in in book form and that you include some really, really fascinating stories as well. The book is called Unintended Consequences. It's published by Marion Press. The author is my guest, Ray O'Hanlon. Ray, many thanks indeed for joining us on The History Show this evening. Thank you, Miles.